Hello and welcome to Talk Julia. My name is David Amos. And my name is Randy Davila. So Randy, are you a Beatles fan? <laughs> uh, yeah, I am. Uh, more of a Rolling Stones fan, but still, I enjoy them. Gotcha. Why, what's up? Well, what would you think about uh, the Beatles if they sang about the Julia programming language? I would say that we should use it as an intro and outro song for our podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would be that would be awesome. So that is exactly what Piano Hamster did on YouTube. Uh, he created a song called "Hey Julia," and it uh, it just professes his uh, deep and unabashed love and respect for the Julia programming <laughs> language. Um, if you're watching this on YouTube, you can see the some of the lyrics there on the screen. But uh, anyway, it's it's worth a listen. It's pretty funny. It's actually pretty long. It's uh, the whole four minutes and 20 seconds. So he does like the entire song, Hey Jude, but it's called Hey Julia. Um, so Julia to the tune of the Beatles. I like it. But, you know, speaking of music, what I really wanted to share with you and with our uh, listeners is a collection of music-related packages developed in Julia called Julia Music. And I found this thanks to um, someone on Twitter. I apologize, I don't remember their uh, their Twitter handle. I'll look it up and, and include it in the show notes. But uh, they sent this to me as an interesting, uh, as something to look at, but using Julia with music. And it's it's got different packages inside of it. So there's this music processing.jl for processing music, midi.jl, which is a Julia library for handling MIDI files. There's a, a package for making a MIDI mixer slash player with an OpenGL-based uh, GUI. There's a music manipulations package, music visualizations package, all sorts of good stuff. The documentation is kind of the best place to sort of wrap your head around what is all available in this and how to use it. And uh, it's got some really interesting stuff. So things that stood out to me First of all, sort of the foundation of this package is this note type. So you can create a note. It has a pitch, a velocity, a position, duration, and a channel, stuff you would expect if you're familiar with MIDI. And uh, so you can read and write notes. Uh, you can read notes in from a MIDI file, or you can write them to a MIDI file. And then you can work with them in Julia as well. And it's got some stuff for doing like data extraction, so you can filter Pitches, separate pitches, combine, uh, all sorts of stuff, uh, and uh, do some, some more advanced things like estimating delays, working with the music in the notes as a time series, which opens up some interesting uh, maybe machine learning stuff to do with music uh, as yeah. well there. Um, and you can also visualize it. So there's some examples of creating some scatter plots of notes, like plotting their velocity to, I think this is maybe a uh, time or beats on the, on the bottom, or it says ticks actually. Uh, but you can also plot some different things. You can plot piano notes on sort of this plot where you've got the note on the y-axis and the time on the y-axis. And so you can see, uh, you know, where the note is in time uh, and how long it was held for over time. You can do the same thing for, you know, pitch, pitched notes. So like, you know, like melody or things that have pitch. You can also do uh, the same thing for drum notes. It's a little bit different visualization. You can also print notes into a musical score, which is really cool. So you that's pretty awesome. 
Yeah. So it all, so it obviously handles things like rests and clefts and, and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, really so the, fact package. That, <laughs> the fact that you know those terms reminds me of an email I've received recently from um, a uh, economist who has a PhD who reached out to me over a, a YouTube video that I have on my channel over like how I went from uh, a dropout to a PhD. And this, this economist that emailed me, he emailed me saying that he had struggles going through college and eventually majored in math as an undergrad and then went on to like a PhD in an economics program, but he started off as a music major and oh, wow. his first few years were with music and he was telling me his story and I couldn't help but think about you. And then this makes me think about you more. <laughs> so yeah. you should probably tell the listeners um, your background with music. Yeah. So I've played music as far back as I can remember. I don't have a memory of not playing music. I started taking piano lessons when I was around five years old and uh, my parents bought the, our first piano or the only piano we ever had uh, around that time and uh, took lessons for almost 20 years. I think it was like 19 years or something like that when it was all said and done. Uh, my first sort of attempt at college it took me a couple of tries to, to figure the whole college thing out. But my first attempt was in music. So I was going to study piano at the University of Texas in Austin. That did not work out. I had some pretty uh, major differences with the piano instructor there. I like how you emphasize major. <laughs> Little um, music joke there. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's that. You know, I guess just in a nutshell, people are curious. What happened was the piano professor was really, really into like very pretty and very standard harmony. And I was very much into things like dissonance and discord and abstract and avant-garde kind of stuff. And so it just really clashed. And, and jazz. So Well, well it was jazz. a jazz program. It was a jazz <laughs> yeah. piano program. That's what I was there. Uh, and I'd gotten accepted into it and, and started to, to work with him. But anyway, so I dropped out of the music program and went into general studies and kind of hated life and ended up leaving the University of Texas. And then it wasn't later until a little bit later in life, a few years later, I came back and I had developed a big, I'd already had an interest in science, but I'd developed a bigger interest and was thinking about doing physics, but ended up loving math and uh, went the math route and then ended up minoring in computer science as well, um, because I've been programming for a long, a long time. And uh, it seemed like a nice fit, the two, you know, computer science and math. So as a little bit on my my background. It's a really cool story. And I like to um, share your story, David, with others, because there's <laughs> so many people out there that start down one route and then one way or another end up in programming or mathematics right. or some type of field like this where they might feel alone, but they really aren't. Yeah, There's so many of us that end up here in a very odd way. So. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, well, Randy, what's what's your first topic? So my topic is not about a package. It's not about an article. It's something that's been bothering me as I begin the semester. It's currently January 20th, 2022. And I begin the semester teaching several courses as usual. But every semester I teach a machine learning, a statistical and machine learning course at UVH downtown for undergraduates. And then recently I've started to teach uh, a graduate level course in data science and machine learning at Rice. And I'm having some like internal conflict 
The course at Rice is targeted at industrial engineering students. And the design of the course is based off of Python and understanding Python and using packages in Python. I get the reason why. There's such a vast ecosystem in Python that is useful for someone going into industry to you know, get a job and to, to do interesting things. But the, the, the course at UHD is a little bit different. And on the screen right now, I have, let me get rid of some things. I have my GitHub account from when I first started teaching, or not first, I think this is maybe my second semester, third semester. First started teaching data science and machine learning at the University of Houston downtown. And in this, I look back and I see that everything I did was in Julia. This was right after Julia 1.0 came out. And I look at all of the algorithms that we programmed from scratch, from scratch, like not using any libraries because I didn't understand how to use this library called Flux back then. I didn't understand anything about Julia. I just, I knew about Julia from hearing about it when I was a grad student before version 1.0 came out. And this course and these notebooks that are on the screen right now are literally the first time, I think these are, these might actually be the first time that I ever programmed machine learning. Oh, wow. And it was by scratch. Like for example, on the screen right now, I have the perceptron algorithm. And then later in the semester, we did um, other types of supervised learning and unsupervised learning. And I really felt that the students gained something from it, right? They gained something from programming these algorithms from scratch using a very natural language to do so, like Julia, because Julia has linear algebraic um, um, operations built in and easy to un understand. You can yeah. transpose a matrix. You can do matrix, matrix multiplication so easy without having to invoke an external library like NumPy. Yeah. And you can make random numbers without an external library. You can make, you can generate a matrix of random numbers from a normal distribution to set the weights of a, of a neural network before you decide to train it. And if you don't do it from a, new, a, a normal distribution, it won't work. And my students got to see that back when I did all of this from scratch. Yeah. However, this program for my students at the University of Houston downtown, these students are seniors in a bachelor's degree of data science. It's one of the first bachelor's degrees of data science in the country. And I was a part of building this degree. And what, like me and the committee, or the committee and I, what did we want? We wanted them to go out and to be able to find jobs. Yeah. Right? We wanted them to go out and present themselves in a professional manner. My contributions were on, in the courses of um, advanced linear algebra and optimization, which I've used Julia when I taught that. And then also this uh, statistical and machine learning course, and also exposing them to GitHub and using GitHub. Version control is very important. Right? Yeah. But I felt as if they were not in these early days getting what is expected of a data scientist in the industry. And by that, I mean, this degree program that we designed started with R. So R programming was the first programming that they ever saw. 
Then the next data science course, they saw Python. They had to take courses in Python. They were probably exposed to about three to four different courses in Python, as well as different courses in R for statistical needs. Right? There, it's my belief, and I think that a lot of people would agree with this, that to be a data scientist, to be in this realm, to be in a technical realm, it's beneficial to be exposed to a bunch of different languages. However, again, and I, I'm probably repeating myself, back in these days, my students were not exposed to things like SkyKit Learn or TensorFlow. And watching YouTube videos, as those of you that have listened to the past few podcasts probably know, I love YouTube, or reading things like Towards Data Science or Medium, I see that there's so much out there with these libraries like SkyKit Learn and TensorFlow and being able to use other people's work to implement things that can go into production yeah. that I started to question myself whether or not I should be using Julia. So that's why I switched to Python. In the past few semesters, I have used Python primarily as the language of choice. But as David and I have dived into Julia, I've wanted to go back to where I started from, and I've wanted to implement Julia code in these courses. Now, I can't do this throughout the entire course at Rice because we, that is a specific audience, and I want them to do a certain thing. But at UHD, I have a little bit more leeway as to what language I want to show them. I just want them to be... I don't want them to show up to a, a job when they graduate and feel as if they didn't learn what they should have learned from me and my fellow faculty. And it, it really kind of tugs at me, even though I want to show them how awesome Julia is, because it is, when, especially when programming things from scratch. I have this like back and forth, back and forth. And as my semester this spring, 2022 is starting, I'm kind of going back and forth internally about what I should do and how I should lay out these topics and these techniques for my students. Now, I was not never trained formally in programming, so it's hard for me to gauge on how well a student that's been exposed to two different languages as an undergrad will transition into using a third one and still be able to pick up these details of the others. I, I, I'm, I'm conflicted because there's a way, there's a professional way of programming in each of these three languages I've mentioned, R, Python, and Julia. And I'd like to expose them more to Julia without getting rid of the, the, the details behind Python, especially, is that's where I come from. Yeah. Now, I have to ask David at this point, because he minored in computer science and has taken so many more courses than I have and has, an, it has a pedagogical view on teaching programming that I don't. And I just, I'm curious to ask you, David, like, what do you think about this conundrum that I feel in or that I, I find myself in? Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, I think it is like a valid problem. Like it's, you know, on the one hand, Julia is a really fastly, a really fast growing language. It's really nice. Uh, and for data science type stuff, it's actually quite capable in its current form and it's only going to get better. But if you look at job listings, you know, the overwhelming number of them uh, are looking for folks with a Python background or, you know, with proficiency in Python. So I, you know, 
I guess my take on it is you are doing students a disservice by not exposing them to Python, especially if they are data science students and they are well, going looking to get a data science job after. I, I have to like through. interrupt a little bit and say that they have been exposed to um, intro to Python, uh, data structures with Python, and then more or less like intro to statistical analysis with Python. So they've had at least three Python courses yeah. and they've had at least three R courses. So they, yeah. there is like, they know how to switch between those two. But That's it, good. the only thing they haven't been exposed to from Python is the package e ecosystem that is available to yeah. them with regards to machine learning. So that, I just had to clear that up. That, they are definitely exposed, but the package ecosystem and machine learning, they probably haven't been. Yeah. And so I do, you know, I feel like it's important for them to see that stuff. You know, the other side of that, though, and this is where, you know, from a teaching perspective, I think one of the best things you can do is not only teach people a programming language, but teach them how to learn a programming language, because that's a skill, you know, when you get out into the job market, what's happening now, you know, five years from now could be gone or it's, you know, kind of considered archaic. There's something new, could be a totally new language. It could be new packages, whatever. They're constantly going to have to learn to keep up. And if they have a skill set that allows them to effectively teach themselves uh, new things, then they're going to be able to keep up with that. So, you know, adding Julia into the mix is I think gonna help reinforce that skill. Like, okay, we're focusing on Python. You're aware that, you know, of, there's a lot of jobs that are gonna require you to be proficient with Python and maybe even have some experience with, you know, NumPy and some of the machine learning libraries, PyTorch, TensorFlow, Scikit-Learn, all that stuff. But, you know, Julia is a more appropriate language for some problems, even data science problems, than Python. Oh is. yeah, I, I, I tell my students all the time that they should be, uh, programming language agnostic. Like there is yeah. no one programming language that will solve everything. They have to know about all of the possible solutions. And I even yeah. mentioned to them things like Swift or Ruby, just so they know these names and not so like isolated, <laughs> which reminds me of, or reminds me of a question I had about your undergrad, like education, because it, <laughs> We're old. It's a long time ago for some people, but to me, it doesn't feel like it was that long ago. You just graduated in 2013, but did you even experience Python? Did you know what Python was even as a CS minor as an undergrad? So no, at the time there were no Python courses. At least I didn't take any. I don't think there were any in the entire, you know, I don't think any were offered. Yeah. I mean, I never saw it. I think I knew I heard about Python by the time I graduated, but I'd never taken a course using it and I hadn't really done much uh, with it. It wasn't until later that I really started diving uh, into it. And it was primarily job related. <laughs> it was, you know, sort of like, wow, okay, if I'm going <laughs> to mix my mathematics education with computer programming, then I'm either going to go, you know, do like numerical or like scientific computing somewhere, or I'm going to go and do this data science thing. And I kind of went with the data science route. And you know, I had to learn Python and I, you know, and that's, and I like it. I like Python. Um, but so now I feel like my, if I don't expose my students to Julia, like five years, 10 years down the, the road, they'll be like, Oh, my professor didn't even like tell us about Julia. <laughs> 
Yeah, like, ah, you it's should mention because, it. Oh, I definitely do, but like not showing them even a little bit, even though like I spent a lot of time programming on it. Like I don't know, I, I'm just some. It's a very conflicting place to be from a professor that really cares about how my students learn. Yeah. And what and like what they'll be able to do after they leave my university. And I have like I have a very I have a big soft spot for my students at UHD because I graduated from UHD just like you did. Right. Right. Like it's I want them to do the best I can, and I don't want to put them in a bad spot. Even though I want to show them all this awesome stuff with Julia, I'm I'm having a hard time trying to balance it. And I I hope that some of our listeners will chime in if they're having the same struggles and like kind of help us out and i think there's articles out yeah, there there definitely is articles out there uh david do you have one that i think you were saying you might have had one i do but have one while he's uh waiting to find that article though i will say that at least on indeed.com um i recently searched for jobs related to julia programming and saw that there was a job that specified julia programming literally i could walk there in about five minutes from my house in downtown Houston. Oh, not wow. currently, nice. not currently I have a broken leg right now, but <laughs> if I didn't have a broken leg, I could walk there in about 10 minutes. And then there was like hundreds after that. So it's out there. And I think that this article might say, say something about that. Yeah, there are jobs out there. And uh, Logan Kilpatrick, who we've mentioned several times on the podcast now, has an article called How to Get a Job Programming in Julia, the Fastest Growing Language. And, you know, it talks about some tips the main takeaway from the article is really that, you know, look, if you want to get a job in Julia, your best chances for that are to really focus on building your network of folks that are involved with Julia or using Julia, because that's where those jobs are going to crop up um, more so than right now than maybe in on something like Indeed.com. Uh, so he really recommends, you know, build your Julia network, meet other people that are working with Julia, make those connections, create content. Uh, you know, that will draw people to you, uh, write blog posts, make YouTube videos, um, you know, show the world that like, you know, Julia, you're excited about Julia, that kind of stuff, and make technical contributions, um, contribute to the Julia language or to Julia packages, or documentation, all those kinds of things. But it's really focused around the, the community and the network that that, to me is kind of the main message of this, like, um, but at the end of the article, he does talk about some job listings that he found, and there's a whole uh, list of links to different job postings. And there's some, you know, decent names in there that uh, uh, you may have, have heard of. I mean, there's uh, Lever, there's uh, Nissan, the car maker, Nissan Research, there's Amazon Quantum Computing is using Julia, and, uh, you know, a bunch of other stuff. So uh, they're out there. I think that over the next several years, we're going to see more and more popping up. And uh, at least, you know, I hope so. I hope to see that it really take off there. It's really interesting to see how like computing and programming languages changes so fast. Yeah. Right. Like things that used to be the norm five, six years ago are like they slowly start like working their way out or not dying completely, but they're not nearly as prevalent as what they used to be. Sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's natural. And that's why I think helping students learn the skill of being, of teaching themselves a new language is m almost more important 
than learning the language in the first place. They're, they're, they're almost equal in my mind because I have been able to take advantage of so many opportunities because I was able to teach myself what was needed you know, quickly for those opportunities. Uh, I've had jobs where I've walked in, gotten the job, and on the first day, I don't know the language. That happened when I with my first programming job with a, an audiovisual installation company. Uh, all of the equipment that they, you know, were selling and using was uh, was scripted with Lua, and I I never worked with Lua before. And it's like, okay, first day on the job, yeah, we we need you to finish this Lua script, you know, by you know tomorrow, so we can go install it. <laughs> wow, okay, you know, but I had the skill. I'd learned so many languages at that point. Um, that I had a framework and a, and a skill set for teaching myself a new language. And so I think that's something you can do as well for students is to give them, help them develop that skill set as well. And it's only going to help them uh, in the future. And talking about that, I actually have uh, a resource that you might uh, want to share with your students, Randy, and, and other people. Before before you, you bring that up, I just have to mention that I was thinking about it as we were talking in um the first two cohorts of the data science bachelor's degree students used to think of Julia because I was the first one to teach this statistical and machine learning course for them. And that's like the last data, data science course that they, they take as data science majors. Yeah, They used to think of Julia as like the senior level <laughs> language. So oh, they've wow. been using like Python and R their entire like undergrad career and they get to their senior year and then they can start using Julia in my class. And I'm like, damn it, like, I miss them, like, thinking that way about Julia. Um, I'm not sure all of them thought that way, but I at least heard it from a few people that, okay. few students that that was, like, their, their like, completion of the, the trifecta <laughs> to make it to Julia. And then they, they were going to finish that semester and then go on to go find a job somewhere. Yeah. But, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. So, yeah, this this resource, it's an amazing Google Colab notebook called Julia for Pythonistas. And I apologize, I don't have the name of the person that uh, it's not, they don't have their name on here. Uh, so I'll look it up. I, I saw it on Twitter. It was being shared on Twitter. I'll look up who uh, wrote it and I can, you know, give them that attribution when we post the links. But it, uh, so it's an interactive notebook you can run on any web browser. So any device that you can run, a, you know, well, with a supported web browser, I guess. Uh, but it covers you know, it's, it's Julia for Pythonistas. And so all the examples, and there's a lot of them, this thing is, is like a book of these uh, notebooks. Uh, all the examples kind of compare, like, here's how you do it in Julia. And here's what it would look like in Python. And what I like about it is, you know, from a teaching perspective, as well as the examples, uh, they're given, you know, here's the Julia, here's the Python, here's a little table that's sort of going line by line and saying, okay, here's, you know, this line in Julia, this is what it would look like in Python. And, you know, sort of giving you that, that comparison, as well as some bullet points of like some main takeaways to, to take away from the example. And it's just full of it. And it covers, I mean, numbers and strings, control flow, tuples, structs, arrays, all the, you know, data types in, in Python and, and how you might translate those into Julia, uh, iteration tools, functions, methods, and multiple dispatch in Julia, and what that means, you know, coming from a Python perspective, uh, working with files. I mean, it's all in here. I mean, you if you studied this, you'd come away. Well, there is a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just watching you scroll down. This is, I definitely need to check this out myself. Like, yeah, it's is... a really great resource. I've learned a lot just by sort of randomly 
picking stuff and looking at some did, of the did examples. Did you notice the GPU down there at the bottom underneath yeah. parallel computing? Yeah. So I, I personally like purchased some computers for David and I to make use of GPU computing in Python. <laughs> and, you know, it can be kind of a pain sometimes. So I'm curious to explore that some more with Julia. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it, I just thought this was a fantastic resource for anyone that's coming to Julia from Python. This is almost like this would be like my go to resource, I think, at this point, like just open this up and see what what it has to say. There's a lot. How did you find there. this again? It was been, it was being shared on Twitter. I just happened to someone in my <laughs> network shared it. And I was like, that looks really cool. And went and checked it out. And like, I am bookmarking this for the podcast. <laughs> I really need to start using Twitter more. I made it because we started this podcast. Like, yeah. I didn't even have like a picture of myself. Twitter, you know, <laughs> like any social media, it has its toxic elements. But I will say uh, it's primarily, it is the only social media that I actively use. I, you know, I have like a LinkedIn profile, so I don't really look at LinkedIn all that much. Um, I don't use Facebook and uh, I don't really use Instagram or any of that stuff. Twitter's, you know, I've met so many amazing people on Twitter. I've made connections there that, you know, like Logan was talking about in his article on jobs, you know, building those connections is important. I found Twitter to be an, an amazing resource for that. I've met so many people in the tech communities and the Python community and the Julia I've community. I've noticed there's a lot of Julia people on Twitter. Yeah. I think it's just mainly just tech, but like way more so on uh, Twitter than like Instagram where I'm on all the time because- yeah. That's just what I'm used to. I'm old. I don't know. I did notice on Twitter that uh, uh, System76, this awesome computer company, this Linux computer company out of uh, Denver, posted my desk setup recently. I, I took a picture of it. Nice. And they like, they, like retweeted it. That's cool. Uh, I'm a big fan of System76. And yeah. if any of you are interested in a uh, Linux machine, it's like it comes installed with Linux, a great um, uh operating system that they have is pop os yeah go check it out it's pretty awesome very cool randy what's uh what's your next topic okay so on earlier we were talking or at least i was talking a little bit about um it's how interesting it is to see programming languages develop over time and there's this one youtube video that i have to share with all of you that if you've been listening, you know that I love YouTube, and this is just what I do. <laughs> yeah. Um, so to preface this, I teach a course called um, Discrete Mathematical Structures, and then at my previous university, it was called Discrete Math. In this course, I teach primarily computer science majors, and I try to emphasize to these majors the importance of knowing where um, the programming languages have evolved from. So I like to ask them questions like, who wrote C++? What university does he work at? He's still there. It blows my mind that some of them living in Texas don't know mm -hmm. that. <laughs> um, that Texas wrote... A&M. Yep, exactly. Um, what's the most famous programming book out there? Now, this is not, this is a fact. It is this guy. <laughs> the C programming this, language. Yeah, the yeah, C yeah. programming language by uh, Kernigan and uh, Richie. And I like to like emphasize the importance of this. And even that early uh, programming started with these punch card things, right? Yeah. So this YouTube video, which I'm gonna share my screen now on YouTube, um, by a man name, named, sorry, <laughs> uh, Mark Rendell, is something that I send all of my students to. It's awesome. 
It is a brief history that goes through um, from even before the 1950s, but really the, the interesting things to me start around the 1950s. Um, the history of the programming languages and where they came from. Now, this is in interesting. I keep on saying interesting. It's annoying. This is um, related to Julia in that when I am coming back to Julia and exposing myself to it again, I think back to the syntax that I've seen in other languages. Yeah. So I started in C, I started, and then from C I went to C++, and then went to Python. Then I tried some other things, like uh, I tried Swift, I tried Ruby, I had Ruby on my computer for a while. And I like to see the progression. And what's similar to Julia compared to these other languages? Yeah. And this guy's video, I can't recommend it enough. It's funny. And he talks about from everything from the very start. And I, <clears throat> I like to get my students to watch this. And then the specific bonus assignment that I give them is to write a, a report about how to program Hello World in all of these different languages, <laughs> which uh, one of them, Fortran, I asked them to do it using punch cards. And there's an app on your phone that you can download to write Fortran code in punch cards. Awesome. So, this section now, um, my section, is, a, is going to be showing David Hello World from different programming languages starting in the 50s. Not all of them, but Hello World from several different languages that this video by Mark Randall uh, gives. And just seeing how David reacts to what it looks like and how it might relate to Julia. All right. So here goes my document that I made last <clears throat> night. First off, we have the, the first real programming language. I, that's subjective, I guess. I don't yeah. know. Fortran. So I see something in front of me. David, what do you see? Well, the first line says program hello. I assume that's name, like giving the program a name. Second line says write and then print open parentheses, star, comma, star, close parentheses, space, and then single quote, uh, string looking thing that says hello, comma, world. And then uh, the third line says end. Um, uh, a similarity to Julia. I see an end. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's something there that's been there for, yeah, for a long time. Um, um, similarity to the Python, I see the, the single quoted string. <clears throat> right. Yeah, I mean, you can do strings both with single quotes or double quotes. Internally, though, Python uh, always shows strings with like a single no, quote representation. <laughs> what you I'm were saying, saying, single quote versus double quote in Python. Oh, yeah. Julia, I, you have to use yeah. the single quotes, correct? Yeah, Julia, yeah. you have no double. <laughs> double, double quotes, quotes. Julia. Yeah. Double quotes. Single quotes are for characters. Yes, correct. <laughs> there you go. All right. So um, I see that there seems to be these types of strings. I see an end related. Um, and then also, for whatever reason, these old folk like to write their declarations in all caps. So right. that's, a, that's a difference for sure. There's only one function I can think of in Julia that requires a capital letter, and we'll get to that in a moment. Okay. All right, next up, we have Algol, which all is right. the predecessor to the B programming language, which came before C. Mm -hmm. So what do you see on the screen? Well, on the first line is the word begin. And then there on the second line, we see some indentation, which we didn't see in Fortran. Nice. Uh, display. 
which I assume is like a function or something to you know show something. And then in parentheses, a double quoted string says hello, comma world. There's a uh, semicolon at the end of that line. First time we've seen a semicolon. And then uh, on the third line, not indented, it says end again, but there's a period after it, which is kind of interesting. So I think these people liked periods early in the day. We do see the begin end statement, which yeah. reminds me of Julia. Yeah. I like it. Um, I have to say that the display and then the um, open parentheses and the string hello world and double quotes, there's a space in between there. Right. Now, when I'm teaching programming to very beginners, I see people make spaces all the time between mm. the function call and the parentheses. And I wonder if that was like, is that the most natural way to do it to someone that's never programmed before? It's it's something that know. like it's a it's an interesting thing for those of you that teach these these things and observe what students do all the time. Yeah. All right. So to keep on moving, I don't want to take up too much time. Next, we have a Lisp. Yeah. Which I don't even know what that. I've never heard of that before in my life, David. It looks like you might have have. So what do you see in front of you? <laughs> so it's a single line, which is the first time we've seen a, a program this you know, hello world in a single line. Uh, the whole line is inside of parentheses and there it says print space and then double quote string, hello, comma world. It reminds me, like when I see this, I go, oh, that looks like the print statement in Python 2. It's just been surrounded in uh, print in parentheses. It seems like the most backward way to write a function to me, but it does remind <laughs> me of Python 2. Um, I will say that we've seen single quoted strings and double quoted strings so far from these different languages. So maybe there was a discussion amongst these old folk. I would be careful like, calling them strings though. Like, I don't know if string was really a concept in, in those languages, in all of those languages, um, uh, but I know what you mean. Yeah, there's like- Maybe the, like output? <laughs> kind of text or something. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's keep on going. Next up we have COBOL. So- oh, this, Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so this, you know, it's starting to look a little bit more complicated. Uh, this one has five lines in it, which has been the longest one we've seen so far. And it starts with something super weird. It says identification space division period, which I don't, you know, I have no idea what that means. Then on the second <laughs> line, program dash ID period space, hello dash world. I assume that's maybe giving the program a name or something like that. Program ID would kind of indicate that. And then on the third line, procedure space division period. I don't know what this division stuff is. No idea. The periods, though, just get to me. The periods, yeah. It's like writing a sentence or something, I guess, right? It's the end of the sentence. Um, and then uh, on the fourth line, there's some indentation, and then it says display, space, and then single quote, hello, comma, world. And then on the fifth line, still indented, it says stop, run. And you missed so, that there's two periods. <laughs> well, there's, there's a period at the end of every single yeah. line. Yeah. So we, we see the indentation again. That's kind of, that's that's reminiscent of what we're used to now. Yeah. The periods though, just really throw me off and the <laughs> uh, everything being capitalized. So yeah. to me, this reminds me of like, uh, like old, like seventies, eighties movies of like robots talking. Right. Where like everything they say is like a hard stop. <laughs> so maybe <laughs> back then there was like this like futuristic robot, robot, <laughs> uh, like, 
uh, theme when writing these things. Yeah. So this is COBOL. Um, apparently, IBM was really into uh, the, the tech space back then and wanted to have their own <laughs> version of a programming language. And um, they, they thought that um, every program should have a min minimum number of lines to be explicit. And they didn't think that this version of Hello World by COBOL was appropriate. The one, two, three, four, five lines that are in front of us with two indentations. So yeah. now on my screen on the YouTube channel is the version of, of uh, Hello World in IBM COBOL. I don't know how many lines that is, but dude, what do you think? Just take a guess. Like... A couple dozen, <laughs> you know, 18 to 24 lines, something like that. Uh, I can't read what the lines say. Uh, but I mean, I wouldn't read through all that anyway. I guess what what it, what immediately stands out to me is that, uh, you know, they say they want something with a minimum minimum number of lines to be explicit. This is the most number of lines we've seen at all. However, I could you know the explicit part is I think important there. So maybe they were trying to bring to the forefront some of the stuff that's going on sort of behind the scenes. So it's so, more explicit. What? So maybe um, maybe since you can't read it, I'll just tell you that. The line 001, like the, the first line of what I think looks like code says, capital Ident identification division. So we keep on saying division over and over again for some reason. Mm -hmm. So that's the first line. And then the program, program ID is hello in single okay. quotes. And then it kind of goes down. There's like a data division thing. There's a display, another display, hello, constant. Like it's, it's very explicit, but kind of overkill. So I just wanted to show that to our listeners. And again, there'll be a link to this actual YouTube video in the show notes below. And I highly encourage you to go watch this. It's kind of long, but I've, it's, it's comical. Up, <laughs> next up, we have basic. Now, yeah. apparently this is a very popular language from the like uh, historical programming videos that I like to watch. Yeah. And David, it looks like based off of your face, you might've used basic before. I so did. what do you see in front of you? Uh, yeah, so this is, yeah, this brings back lots of memories because when I was uh, eight or nine years old, my family got our first computer. It was uh, uh, IBM like 386, I think. And it had uh, Microsoft DOS on it. And uh, there was uh, QBasic on it. And uh, that was my very first programming language. I taught myself how to use QBasic um, when I was, yeah, eight or nine years old. And uh, so this, you know, it's got the line numbers or, you know, they're not really line numbers, but it starts, you know, with the 10 and the 20. And, you know, this is in all basic programs. First line, 10 space, and then it says print in all caps space, and then double quote spring, hello, string, hello, comma world. And then on the last line, 20, go to 10. So the go to, the go to statement. So um, <laughs> in my notes, I have, this reminds me of Pluto. That's not what I meant. This reminds me of Jupyter Notebooks. Like if you're calling, it reminds me of like cells. You know how like cells are numbered? It's oh, not okay. exactly the same, yeah. but it does remind me of like referencing back that. to a cell that's already been made. Mm -hmm. So to me, I, I love this historical stuff and like trying to figure out what languages have built on others and see how things have evolved. Mm, it's yeah. the, the nerd in me. All right, next up, APL. A programming language. <laughs> Love that name. <laughs> yeah. So the strings here remind me of Jupyter Notebooks. So the first picture on the screen right now 
is Hello World and APL. So why do you think that that reminds me of Jupyter Notebooks? I think what you're thinking of is the fact that, you know, in like a Jupyter Notebook, you can type, say, like a like an expression or like a constant. So you could just type in the string, hello, comma, world, right? And and hit, you know, enter or shift enter. And it would right. print, it would print that string in the output of the cell. And exactly. This, yeah. And so this, that's all that is in this program is just a string, hello, world. There's no print, there's no display there, you know, none of that is uh, is there. So Mark Rendell, the uh, the guy speaking in this video, mentions, maybe he's quoting someone else, that obviously anything enclosed in quotes was meant to appear. <laughs> so th that's like why that would appear. And you would think that that would make it like a very natural thing. Um, that's how you should possibly print. And then the funniest thing to me is that he goes on to say that if you think that this is clear and, and APL is like a good language, a very clear language, then you should look at Conway's Game of Life. So on the screen uh, now, David, what do you see? <laughs> uh, well, it just looks like a whole bunch of symbols. There's like up arrows and ones and, you know, Greek letters, omega and carrots and all sorts of stuff. <laughs> and it just looks like it looks like hieroglyphics. I mean, so to relate this to uh, Julia on the screen right now, we have um, a variable. It looks like life. And then there's an arrow pointing at it and then like curly braces and then a bunch of different symbols that you can get in Julia and actually yeah, do sure. things with. Like there's a subset symbol. There's an equal, there's an, a land, like logical and symbol. There's a logical mm -hmm. or a symbol. There is a, oh, look at that composition symbol that you were talking about earlier with like composition of functions. <laughs> like well, I'll talk this, about that in a minute, I guess. Oh, <laughs> that we were talking about. Yeah. But it's interesting to see that this this language was making use of those characters already. Yeah. Right? So there is a mix between like the like the what we consider like simple to we want these symbols to make things as quick as possible. Like how do we like balance these things? Yeah. Um next uh, up the most famous one. So C, all of you should know what, what C uh hello world looks like. Um I'm not even going to ask David to like describe it because as some of our listeners might be new to programming and starting off, I don't want to sound like an old fart, but you have to look at this book called The C Programming Language by Kernigan and Ritchie and just play around with C and be exposed to it so you know what it is. I think that the way that this book is written really describes a good way of teaching programming. It gives examples first and then goes into the details instead of details and examples at the same time. I think that's why so many people love it. And mm. it's the first book that used Hello World. Right. Yeah. Right. So Hello World, this notion came from the C programming language. And then also with regards to Julia, the printf function, you can import. This is something that's available in Julia. <laughs> Yeah. Right. So, oh, Dave, you have to talk about this one. What do you, okay, so I'm going to make it as big as I can so you can see it. The next language is Intercal. <laughs> this is Hello World and in Intercal. So this looks to me like some weird mixture of like assembly or like even like bytecode, like I've seen um, 
<laughs> maybe not so much like that but you know it it seems yeah i don't know there's it has that feel to me uh however the very first thing that stands out to me to look at this is the please so it's like <laughs> there's these lines that are like please do uh please read out please give up <laughs> at the very end okay so i have to i have to tell you a little bit about this language now so in the uh 1970s pretty much everyone apparently this is what i learned from watching this this uh video on youtube most people kind of realized that c was going to be the main language and if you weren't programming c then you weren't going anywhere so people started making um, obscure languages. Yeah. So the hello world um, image that David's looking at, there's probably like 12 lines of like code that says do, and you yeah. see like, please do at the very top, at the very end, please read out, which prints out the hello world. And then at the very end, it says, please give up. Yeah. Now, um, if you do not end your uh, intercal program with please give up, it triggers your CPU to run at 100% and kills your computer. <laughs> wow. That's like a part of like the source code for it. Um, now, <laughs> you and if you do not, and again, I'm stealing words from this video that all of you should watch. If you, so you might notice that there's please do, please read out, please give out, and the rest of it is just do, right? And there's maybe like one other um, do statement or please do statement. Apparently, if you don't do please enough, the program will return an error saying that the programmer is insufficiently polite <laughs> if you don't ask please enough. But if you try to write every line with please, it returns that the programmer is excessively polite and uh. also an error. <laughs> and there's no documentation of this anywhere. I just had to like bring that up because maybe That's our listeners funny. would find this funny. All right, next up, Julia. Finally back to our home. Yeah. So what are the ways to print hello world in Julia? Well, there's two different functions in the Julia REPL. And if you're using an IDE like a Visual Studio Code, you can just call the print and then throw in hello world. Mm -hmm. Or you can do the print LN. So print LN prints hello world with a line space after it. Yeah. And you would think that that would be it. However... If you learn about Pluto notebooks, there's a few other ways, a yeah. few other like necessary ways. So first off, in, in Jupyter notebooks and Pluto no notebooks, if you just put the string hello world and you into a cell and you press shift enter, hello world appears. Yeah. All right. So that's good. But if you're in a Pluto notebook and you type the, the function print line hello world, it doesn't appear. It actually will appear in your terminal. Yeah. So you can't really use that as a way of printing hello world. What you need to do, which for some reason isn't on my screen, I guess I hit it, is you need to um, type using Pluto UI to access these other functionalities. And then once you import that that package, Pluto UI, you can print to the notebook by calling the function capital P, like yeah. you were seeing earlier. <clears throat> There's a difference gotcha. with capital P. Capital P print and then throw into that function, hello world, 
that capital P function will print hello world to the notebook. But there's other ways. Once you've imported a, a Pluto UI, there's the with terminal function. So with terminal, which is a function, you type this into a cell, open parentheses, throw in the function that you want to call, print in this case, mm -hmm. comma, the argument you want to give it, with terminal, arguments, print function, comma, hello world, that will print out in a terminal viewer looking thing on Pluto. Nice. You can do the same thing with print line. And then finally, you can do this kind of conditional statement. They're not conditional statements. With terminal, close the parentheses out, do mm -hmm. print hello world end. Yeah. So one of the reasons why we just went down this rabbit hole of like old uh, hello world print statements was me experiencing Pluto notebooks in the different ways to interact with printing hello world. Okay. We're seeing ends, like end statements. We're seeing yep. with terminal function statements, do statements. We saw a bunch of do's earlier. Yeah. Um, and we see capitalization differences in the functions. I thought it was like fascinating to me. Like it made me think as a nerd that about all of these things that I learned about in the YouTube video that you'll see in the show notes below. So nice. that's all I have to say about that. David, what do you have next? Cool. Yeah. Well, uh, real quick. I mean, I guess, you know, my takeaway from that, it's all, well, it's always fun to learn about history and kind of see where things came from, but it also makes you appreciate kind of how good we have it now with, uh, with <laughs> modern programming languages and, uh, and that stuff. So the evolution has, has been, has produced some good stuff. And, uh, you know, who knows where it'll go in the, in the future. Well, so the, the last thing I wanted to talk about is, uh, it kind of goes back to some of the symbols we saw earlier. And that is, uh, this article I found through, I found it through juliabloggers.com, which is a kind of a neat site to, uh, you know, they collect like RSS feeds from different blogs that are publishing about Julia, but, um, the, the blog itself is by, uh, Bogomil Kaminsky. I'm sorry if I botched your name, but, uh, it's called why, how, and when of circle. Well, that's the, the composition function composition operator. So it's a little bit older article. It's from November 5th of, of last year of 2021, but he talks about, okay, there's this composition operator that you can use to compose two functions, right? So if you have a function F and a function G, I'm sorry, can you hear Miles scratching at my door? No. Okay. So if you have a function F and a function G, you know, the composition of those is, you know, calling F on the output of G basically, right? So you call G first, you get its output, you pass that output as an argument to F. That's, you know, composing those two functions. Actually, I can hear him. Hold on. It sounds second. like you typing. Yeah, hold on one second. Okay, back. <clears throat> okay. 
And in this article, he goes over, okay, what, you know, what is this little circle as composition operator? How can you use it? One thing I love about this article is that the very first thing he says is, okay, let's start with the basics. And before you even understand what this does, you probably wonder, well, how can you even type it, right? So it goes back to, um, you know, the typing in Unicode symbols by it. using sort of the latex syntax, right? With like a backslash, the name, and then you press tab. And he says, okay, you can copy and paste the symbol into the help part of the REPL, right? Um, which we talked about in, I think, the our second episode. And it shows you, okay, you can type this by, you know, it tells you exactly how to do it. Type backslash circ, C-I-R-C, and then press tab, and you'll get it. And it also gives you some information about what it does, compose functions, all that sort of stuff. So that's really cool. I love that he talks about, you know, showing you how to get help about stuff. I love, you know, I love that stuff. Anyway, he goes on to talk about, okay, understanding what it does, and he gives you some examples of using it. So he creates a function called C, which is the composition of absolute, the abs function with the sign function. So abs, circ, sign. And now you can call C and it'll first, you know, give it some value, probably in radians here. And it will first pass that to the sign function, uh, calculate the value, and then take the output from that and put it in the absolute uh, value. So you'll always get a positive uh, number from this. And uh, it talks about some things you can look at the type of C and it, it has a type called composed functions. So there's its own type. Uh, and it has some field names, outer and inner. So you can get the outer function uh, using like C dot outer will tell you, oh, that's abs. That's the absolute value function. And the inner function in the composition is sign. This is um, so awesome. I didn't see this earlier. We didn't talk about this. This is so awesome. From it's the cool, point huh? of view of like, well, like in like when you're like when you're writing your own neural networks, you're looking like a, you're looking at an input and output function for each layer of right. your, your deep network, right? And you have activation and pre-activation. This is literally a way of doing that. Like yeah. you're compositioning, compositioning over and over and over again. And I, I need to look at Flux way more because I think they might actually use this. Again, I might be very wrong. Yeah, I don't this know. is the, my first thought is like, this is perfect for layering this composition over and over again, because you can access the left, left function, right. left function in like, Find your way back. Yeah, you do That's the whole outer thing. inner thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, keep on. I'm sorry. <laughs> so then it goes into like, you know, what's the rationale for this? Why why would you do this? So there's a couple of, without having a composition function, you can still compose functions. And he gives some examples of that. One, which to me was kind of the more obvious way, I, you know, it may not be for someone else, but was to use uh, a... Um, um, not an abstract function, a, an anonymous function. That's what I'm looking for, where you have like, you know, X and then the, the little right arrow, you know, dash, and then the right carrot, and then F parenthesis G parenthesis X, right? So you're just, you're just doing that, uh, making that composition in, in this anonymous function. You can also use this chain operator, this, uh, you know, the vertical bar um, or the pipe symbol with the right hand carrot, and you can chain stuff. Uh, but he says, mentions that, you know, these approaches are more visually noisy, they're less explicit, and they create a new anonymous function each time they're used, which means triggering compilation. So this is a really important 
uh, part here. And this is kind of the big thing I learned from this. So he talks, he, he, he talks about the comparison when you run. Uh, so the, the example he gives is you take a range between, you know, the number one to 100 and we're going to sum over that range, but we're going to apply this, you know, absolute, you know, absolute value composed with sign to it. So it's going to apply that um, to each value in the range and then sum over all of that. And the first time you do it, it takes on the machine he used about 0.15 seconds. Uh, and you see in the output, so he's using this at time macro as well to uh, to do this. So it's a good example of you know how to use that at time macro. But you can see in the output that it tells you 99.78% of the, the time here was uh, in compilation. Then when you use this again, so he runs the exact same line of code again, the sum function with the absolute composed sign on this range. And the second time it takes 0. 0.00001 seconds. And in the output, you see there was no compilation being done. So now, again, I'm not, I'm not like a, by any means very familiar or like knowing the details of Julia, but I think that that is a part of like the multiple dispatch. Yeah, I'm not 100% sure. I don't want to talk authoritatively on the details of what's going on in the background. Multiple dispatch, I do know, you know, plays a part in compilation. For example, you know, that's part of what's being compiled is, um, and we haven't really right. talked about multiple dispatch on here, but that's, you know, the, the, the function can be defined many times to accept many different types of arguments. So um, the, that is part of what's, what's going on. But uh, this, the second example he gives is doing the same thing, but using an anonymous function. Now, instead of using the, the composition operator. And what you see is that the first time it runs, uh, you it takes about 0.15 seconds again. The second time it runs, it's faster, but it still takes 0.03 seconds. That's a lot slower than the, uh, than the composition version. But what's the key thing here is that that second time you run it, it's still having to do some compilation. And that's because... Every time you create an anonymous, anonymous function, it's creating a new anonymous function that even though it's exactly the same as you know what he had done in the, the first time he ran this line, uh, it's a new function. It has to be compiled again. So you're you're doubling, you know, how how many compilations or you know, this could actually explode quite a bit depending on what you're doing with these anonymous functions. But so you're losing a lot of you know time to compilation there. Uh, potentially, so this is you know one of the key reasons you'd want to you want to use this, um, and the other um, the other big thing about it is that you're able when you when you compose two functions using the composition operator, you're able to then take that that function and pass that in you know as a function to like a higher order function that takes a function as an argument, um, and you can't do that necessarily with uh, some of the anonymous functions. So anyway, I just. I thought it was really cool. It was the first time I, I didn't know that there was a function composition operator like that. So I think that's really cool that not only does it have it, but that it actually is a big difference over doing it sort of what I would kind of consider what or how I probably would have done it um, coming from Python and other languages. I would have done, you know, the anonymous function. I wonder, I wonder if like this, this dot or this circle composition Again, I don't know. I'm just guessing. Hopefully, some of our listeners let us know. Like, does the the circle composition inherit the type 
of the the parent functions, whereas the the anonymous function has to figure it out on the spot. Like there's something the the timing is so weird in this example that it's really I don't know. It's really interesting to me, and I don't know why. And it <laughs> it's just again, it's interesting. I'm glad you found this because this is I don't know. Well, it's piqued our curiosity. Now we have something to go and, and check out and explore. And I'm sure someone will, will let us know too, some more information what, what's what's going on. So, but uh, yeah, nice, nice little article. Um, it covered all, you know, some really interesting points and had some surprising stuff in it that, uh, that you know, made it stand out to me. So good stuff. Well, well thanks. Uh, thanks for coming and hanging out again and uh, look forward to chatting with you again next week. All right. <laughs> See y'all next time. Bye.